One Week Season. The nation, my dudes and dudettes, Hilo and X here shortly, bringing you another edition of the Saturday Inner Circle podcast. Man, we really need to get a better name for that next year. Uh, I digress. This week, man, week 15, what a unique and interesting slate. We have two games that have been moved from the main slate due to COVID reasons. We have one game that was already moved from today's slate for COVID reasons, leaving that a showdown and absolutely wrecking Zandemir's schedule, who writes all the showdown slates. We have three teams. I, let me check that. We have three teams that have 19 or more players on the COVID list, one of which is on this early slate. We have COVID, basically 100 plus players have been added to the league's COVID list this week alone. And we're seeing it, we were just talking before we hit the record button here. We are seeing it across all major sports. So NHL has postponed games until after the Christmas break. We have NBA, obviously, who is picking dudes up off the street uh, to, so they can fill their rosters. It has been absolutely insane. So on top of being late in the season with injuries and coach firings and everything that goes on in an NFL season, on top of all that, we're now seeing this hyper, um, hyper aggressive and transmittable mutation of COVID kind of ravage through not only professional sports, but kind of the world. So there are a lot of moving pieces with this slate. It is kind of takes the information overload that we've kind of seen a couple times throughout the season. It is taking that to a whole new level. So there is a lot going on. There are, there's a lot of stuff that we're going to talk about on this podcast that kind of ties directly into that. And there's some stuff that Jam has also put out, if you've been following his stuff this week, uh, about being hyper-flexible, about not making final decisions until like right before or even like right before the afternoon games kick off uh, and, and being able to be adaptable and change our plans in order to do so. We're going to lead with this. And that's why I kind of, I went into this long introduction here on this slate, but in able, in order to be able to be in a position where you can make those changes or be flexible or make those decisions come crunch time, you got to have that found that solid foundation and that solid base of knowledge from which to deviate. So that's a lot, uh, a long intro, a lot of kind of what we're going to be diving into today, because this is like, we, we kind of, it ter- has turned into the running joke on this podcast that this is a super unique and, <laughs> and, um, whatever, super unique and dynamic slate. Uh, but that, that is like coming to a culmination this week. Uh, so that is something that we definitely need to Talk about keeping front of our mind. Without further ado, Mr. Zandermer, how are we doing today, brother? Oh my god, <laughs> yeah, this has thrown a wrench in my scheduling. It's very fortunate that um, yesterday was my last day of my regular day job for the year. 
so I have more time to like write more showdown slates because all of a sudden we have extra, which is awesome. I love more showdown slates. I'll take all the showdown slates you can give me. Um, but it's it's been chaos. I was actually really hoping that some site was going to leave the games that were shifted to Tuesday on their main slate and just make the slate extend uh, because that would introduce all kinds of like super fun and interesting uh, like late swap strategies and, and sort of risk strategies of like, well, do I want to try playing this guy who's in this game that's been pushed to Tuesday? What if the game gets canceled? Like I was hoping that was going to happen, but it didn't. Um, but it's, I, it, it is the running joke that it's unique and interesting slate every single week because it's true. Every slate is unique and interesting in its own way. Um, but this is a bizarre one. And you know, I, I, I don't know for sure. Right. Like, I don't think we, I don't think we can know, but, there's a reasonable chance that we haven't that we don't have all the news yet. Right? Like we've been seeing guys getting added to the COVID list all freaking week. Do you really think that out of the hundreds of NFL players out there, no one contracted it today? Uh, with how much spread there is. So like we could get more news. We could get news tomorrow morning. Um, I don't know the league's exact testing protocols. I believe it's like an early Sunday morning test that kind of clears everyone. It's like the final test they do. Um, Cause I remember, but I'm just remembering that from last year because I remember like Sunday mornings, early, like early Sunday morning, Adam Schefter would usually tweet out like, you know, no more COVID cases. Everyone's been cleared. Game's clear to proceed. So I think they're using a similar protocol, but like we could we could still get more news overnight that takes guys out of play or puts new guys in play. Um, there's players out there who are on the COVID list, but who are vaccinated and so just need two negative tests 24 hours apart. Um, and so that we could get guys who we're not thinking about right now and who were then unexpectedly cleared and able to play. So like there's just we, we talked last week about how last week had so much uncertainty. And you know, that's the theme of this week, too, I think, is uncertainty. Um, and when there's a lot of uncertainty that benefits us uh, in tournaments because chalk still forms and players congregate around where they perceive there to be the most certainty, um, including a couple of the, the high. And quarterbacks this week, I think, is where is where people are perceiving that certainty. Um, and there's not necessarily a lot of certainty in those positions. And so chalk, the chalk on weeks like this is often uh, more fragile, I think, than a lot of people realize. Um, and I think it's likely to be like this for the rest of the season because we're going into winter, um, which means colder temperatures, which means people staying inside. You know, winter traditionally flu season and coronavirus spreads similarly to flu. So I think it's, you know, we're going to have more spread. We also have this new variant that is highly, highly transmissible. Um, so I think that the next, the, the remaining weeks of the season are likely to be similar to this week with the league sort of struggling to keep things going and not like pause the season. Um, I think the NBA is kind of in the same boat or they're like, they're, they're really, they're trying to keep the season going. Um, but I think we're just, we're going to keep seeing more and more of this like wildness with COVID for the remainder of the season is my guess. So yeah, be ready to be flexible because shit's going to get wild. Yeah, hundred percent. And it starts to make sense why the NFL moved the games that they did. Looking through the active players on COVID list, the Los Angeles Rams currently have 19 players. So you think about a normal NFL roster is typically 55 players, right? They have 19 players uh, of those 55 on the COVID list. Um, the the well, I guess I'll continue on the the higher amount of uh of covid list teams washington football team they have 19 players on the covid list cleveland has 20 players currently on the covid list 
So it starts to make sense why the NFL made the decision that they did, because uh, now you're starting to talk about, um, you know, even having enough personnel uh, to field <laughs> two sides of a game uh, with 22 players, obviously, plus special teams uh, who would be deemed your starters. So uh, it starts to make sense. That's why the NFL did what they did. But that said, there are still teams um, on this main slate that have, you know, numerous players on the COVID list. Um, the most on the main slate is there's the Houston Texans currently have seven players uh, on the COVID list with six of those players from the defensive side of the ball. The New York Giants currently have eight players on the COVID list. Obviously, the big one there, um, Kadarius Tony was likely not going to play to begin with, but John Ross also, wide receivers, and then Adore Jackson, who uh, is also battling an injury, but he is highly unlikely to play this week, and that should go into a little bit of our decision-making process as well. Jets got five players on the list currently, and then you start trickling down to the onesies and twosies for at least current observations for this main slate yeah and i just want to note too it's hard to pick apart how it's going to impact the team when they have a bunch of guys out like you know when a team has an injury and they're missing like a cornerback or a lineman um you can kind of figure out like what's going to happen you know who's the backup who's going to play what sort of like what sort of performance hit is that from the starter but when a team is like you know if, if you have the texans missing six uh of their defensive players like that's a pretty good chunk of the overall defensive core of the team. And so it's harder to think it's harder to figure out what the overall defensive impact is going to be to how that defense plays, right. Or how that offense plays if it's, if it's more players on the offensive side. So it just, it introduces more uncertainty. Like it, it's it, the, the uncertainty feels kind of exponential to me with every additional player on the list, because you're taking a larger and larger chunk of like the normal guys who play together and practice together and know the scheme and blah, blah, blah. You're, you're taking a larger and larger chunk of those guys out and replacing them with more unknowns. And so it just like, it, it introduces like escalating uncertainty for those teams that are, that are heavily impacted by COVID. Beautiful lead-in. So what does that do to our decision-making process? And with particular attention to our, I guess the best way to put it is our like acceptance level for variance. So how are you handling that this week, X? Oh man, it's like, it also feels like ownership is wild this week where and I I'm, I don't know the reasoning. I'm not going to try to hypothesize into why it's the case. But like normally on most slates, we see the high end ownership of skill position players. Like the most owned guys tend to be in the 20 to 25 percent range. That's like heavy chalk. And then every once in a while, if you have like a backup running back who shoved into a starting role, that guy might be up to like 30, 35 percent. Um, if he's super cheap, right? Like um, Jeff Wilson, the first week that Mitchell was out or AJ Dillon. Um, but it's unusual to have so many players at the 20% plus range. And then it's unusual to have so many players way above that. It's also unusual as much shock at quarterback, like quarterbacks rarely get above 10% ownership on most slates. We might see one quarterback over 10% ownership on this, this slate. We have four, uh, we have a running back who is 44% owned somewhere in that range. Um, we have wide receiver. We have a wide receiver who projects for over 35% ownership and several others over 20. Um, we have two tight ends in the, the 20% range. We have deep, we have multiple defenses in the 20% range. So 
and this is what I mean by when there's uncertainty, the field tends to gravitate towards perceived safety. Um, and so the field is very much gravitating towards perceived safety um, in these in these spots, like the highest in quarterbacks, Kyler Murray, Josh Allen, Dak Prescott, three of the league's best quarterbacks. They're all great. Right. But like the ownership on those guys is enormous. Um, James Robinson, uh, massively owned in a good spot. He's a good play. Um, but just seeing enormous ownership there. And then Najee Harris is a play who has, has always had somewhat of a questionable ceiling, but his workload gives him an amazing floor. And he's projecting for a ton of ownership at wide receiver. Uh, we have some guys that it's hard to argue against being, you know, highly owned, like Deontay Johnson, who just gets so much volume and Devontae Adams, who is an elite player. And there's a slate, there's a slate without a lot of other elite players. Um, so it's these clear, obvious spend, but then you've got plays like Devontae Parker and, and Gabriel Davis who are pretty, pretty, I mean, they're, they're fine plays, um, but they're pretty fragile in my opinion. Um, and so like, but the field is congregated in these areas of perceived safety. And so for me, um, what that tells me is like, I want to try to be different more on a week like this, where the field is flocking to safety, but I feel that that safety is, it does not necessarily exist. Like I don't personally feel, and your mileage may vary here, but I don't personally feel there's a tremendous amount of difference um, between say a guy like Cole Beasley currently projected for almost 20% ownership at 4,900 um, and a guy like, uh, now I'm struggling for an example, um, Julio Jones, 5,400. Um, so similar price projected for right around the same amount of points um, in the projections I'm looking at, but Cole Beasley at 18% and Julio Jones at 3%. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, that this is where I want to pivot to those plays that I think are roughly equivalent um, at a much, much lower ownership. And, and when ownership gets this high, I'm willing to just kind of, you know, hold my breath and and hope that, you know, Devontae Parker and Gabriel, Gabriel Davis don't get 100 yards and two, two touchdowns and become essential plays. Um, I'm just willing to embrace more. I'm willing to embrace the uncertainty where I feel like the field is running from it. And I can't tell you how that's going to play out this week because I can't predict, you know, outcomes if Devontae Parker will catch touchdowns or not. Um, but I think that in the long term, when you have a slate with a lot of uncertainty, the way to go is to kind of lean into the uncertainty and embrace it rather than trying to sort of to flee from it towards the sort of the the safety of the crowd. Boom. Crush the softball out of the park. I want to talk real quickly <laughs> before <laughs> set you Keep up giving there. me the easy ones. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, let's talk real quickly before we kind of get into even game environments and stuff like that. I want to talk real quickly about roster construction funnels because this week, you know, we and I break this down every week in the end around, but we we talk about the chalk build and how you basically arrive at that is through the practice of examining, you know, everything from crowd psychology to what you're seeing around the industry to how rosters come together. Well, this week, it's very clear where there are some major roster funnels, the first of which you mentioned earlier, and that's at the quarterback position with the top three expected uh, most owned quarterbacks being the basically the top three most expensive. So Kyler Murray and Josh Allen are expected to combine for around, you know, 32 to 35% ownership. So if we go into the slate knowing that a third of the field is going to have a quarterback priced at 7900 or 8100, that gives us a some actionable information to be able to both leverage that and make our throw that into our decision-making process. So we can 
take that information and put it into our, you know, our brain's algorithm about how we're going to figure out what the most optimal way of attacking the slate is. That is the practice of game theory. We take in our observations. We, we take in what we know to be true, fact. We take in what we think the field knows to be true, and we build an optimal or how we see an optimal way of attacking the game. So that is game theory, basically in a nutshell. So if we have this information that a third of the rosters are going to be spending 8K, around 8K plus or minus 100 uh, on, in salary on their quarterback position, what does that do for the rest of the slate? Well, we pair that info with the f- almost 40% expected ownership on Devontae Parker, who's priced at 4.3, the almost 25% expected ownership on Gabriel Davis, who's priced at 3.7. And it starts to become very clear that a good chunk, I'm talking 25 to 33% of rosters in play in GPPs this week are going to have one of Kyler Murray or Josh Allen and one of Devontae Parker and Gabriel Davis. So then we have to decide, is that a situation where we want to be underweight, match the field, overweight? Do we want to change the overall construction of our rosters to combat that? Do we want to alter the build of our roster? And I, I speak to that in the sense of roster or uh, salary allocation. So we, if we have this information, and this is you know seen in current ownership projections around the industry, if we have this information... We can put that into our decision-making process and matrix for how we're going to attack this slate. And then, oh, by the way, we have this almost 50% expected ownership on James Robinson. He is priced at only 5.4, so we throw that into our decision-making matrix. And we start to see that rosters are likely to come together in a very similar way this week. Pay up quarterback, one you know, mid-range to pay down running back in James Robinson, one pay up wide receiver, one you know near min price wide receiver, talking below forty five hundred is considered you know the quote unquote value at the wide receiver position, and then you start to look at tight end as well, and there's two tight ends that are expected to garner forty ish percent ownership combined, George Kittle and Mike Gesicki. Though Mike Gesicki's priced at five k, George Kittle is priced at seventy five hundred. So if we know that. The field is likely paying up at quarterback, paying up at tight end, paying down-ish at running back, and paying down-ish at wide receiver. Like We know what the general roster construction is going to be. With all that said, the other main roster construction funnel this week is actually from a team, and that team is the Buffalo Bills. We talked about Josh Allen. Gabriel Davis, 25-ish percent ownership. Cole Beasley, 20-ish percent ownership. Stephon Diggs, 22 to 25 percent ownership. So three pass catchers from the Bills are expected to garner 65 to 70 percent ownership. That is insane. Who's not expected to garner ownership from the Bills? You know, we, we go through this process of like identifying chalk and deciding how to react to that. It typically goes something like, and I covered this in the end around as well. It typically goes something like, do I expect the offense to fail? Yes, no. Choose your own adventure. If the answer is no, do I want to be underweight, even weight, overweight, the chalk players? Again, breaks off into a, t- a decision tree, a, dis- a decision-making matrix. 
are there other players on that team that would succeed if those players fail? Yes, no. Continue down the choose your own adventure. So when that decision-making process, which is what the field primarily utilizes when, when building rosters, when we get down to that area, well, there's two players that are going to potentially see majority of the snaps on the bills that are not expected to garner ownership. So that has to go into our decision-making process as well. Those two players are Devin Singletary, star asterisk, if Zach Moss does not play. The two contests where out of the last three weeks, Zach Moss was held out as a healthy inactive twice. Devin Singletary saw snap rates of 68% and then 82% in those two games. The other player is tight end Dawson Knox, who just so happens to be priced around one of these chalk tight ends in Mike Kosicki. He's priced at 5.1. So from a game theoretic standpoint, the decision becomes not very clear, but very easy in how to generate leverage from these two main roster funnels. With the quarterbacks, don't play a pay-up quarterback. That'll systematically alter the build of your rosters. And that is... You know, so much goes into that decision-making process as with respect to who you're choosing to not play. This week, the reason I say that the, the decision is almost made for me personally is because I view Kyler Murray and Josh Allen as not hyper-flexible, but, or uh, not hyper-fragile, but fragile. These are fragile plays because Arizona's playing Detroit. We know how Arizona is not the same team they were last year. We know that they are likely to tilt extremely run heavy in games that they control. And their defense is a top five defense this year. So that adds another layer of control for the Cardinals this week. So if we don't expect Tyler to be running. Exactly. So all this comes together. The floor and the ceiling on Kyler Murray are much lower much more shifted left than the field is giving credit for this week. Similar story for Josh Allen. We've seen that Brian Dabble is looking to protect his quarterback a little bit more this year than they were last year. Last year, we could expect them to throw 40 times plus regardless of game environment, regardless of game flow. It didn't matter. They were going to be throwing late into the fourth quarter. Now, although they do have elevated pass rates, and elevated situation neutral pass rates, how long in this game do we expect it to be situation neutral? As in, how do we picture this game to unfold from a likeliest scenario standpoint? Do we expect Carolina's number two overall defense to get pressured by Cam Newton, who has basically looked like an incapable passer and a just basically above average rusher? Do we expect... DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson to light the Bills secondary on fire. All this kind of comes in. They're missing CMC. So like all this comes in to create a game environment that is not conducive to the Bills passing at inflated rates deep into the game. So with all that said, we still expect these two offenses to score, you know, the first and second most points this week, but it might come from different ways than the field is giving credit for. The first of which, obviously, the Cardinals and their backfield. We have um, Chase Edmonds coming back to join James Conner. We have James Conner, who is coming off of a game in which he injured his ankle. 
do we know how the running back split is going to be broken up this week? We have no clue. Can we be fairly certain that the Cardinals backfield as a whole is going to see increased run this week? Yes. So how can we leverage that particular situation or scenario? You can either, you know, I think JM calls it the, what does he call it? The magic formula? The, the cheat code? That's mine. The cheat code, it says. The cheat code, okay. Yeah, I'm getting mixed up with my, my monikers here. The, che- the, uh, the cheat code. The cheat code of playing two running backs from a same backfield. I would argue there's that play is a little bit more fragile this week because of the pricing with James Conner being priced up into the the middle to high range of running back salary. Or you can basically split your rosters in two and play one on each roster in an attempt to basically leap the field with half of your rosters if one of those two guys sees majority of the work. We don't know if James Conner's ankle is going to lead the Cardinals to rest him a little bit more. We don't know if Chase Edmonds is lacking in conditioning because he was basically his practice window was opened up less than a week ago and now he is activated uh for this game so there's a lot of unknowns but that is a way to leverage the field certainty in a week where there is no certainty we talked about devin singletary dawson knox do the touchdowns come on the ground does devin singletary score two touchdowns uh for the first time all year does Dawson Knox put in two touchdowns as Dawson Knox leaned on a little bit more. We don't know, but the field seems to be fairly certain that the majority of the production from the bills is going to come from their quarterback going to come from Gabriel Davis, Stefan Diggs and Cole Beasley. All of that comes into, or needs to be considered and needs to basically factor heavily into our decision-making process this week because the field is exhibiting such certainty surrounding the two highest Vegas implied team total teams. That also plays into leverage created organically off of the major roster funnels that are in place for us this week. So think about that. I'm not going to like, we're not here picking plays. We're not, I'm not here telling you, Hey, play chase Edmonds. Cause he's one of the higher leverage players on the slate. I'm just here saying these are things that higher level DFS theory and game theory urges us to consider. And so I'm passing that information on to you and we will leave the decisions, the actual decision making process over to you. X, that was a crap ton, dude. I just went on for like 15 minutes. Uh, What do you got to say about everything that we just kind of went through? I don't even know what you said. I took a nap. Um. It's like a grow, real quick side story. <laughs> Growing up, my mom, uh, my mom's a, a defense attorney, and she would come home and like, like talk about like lawyer stuff, and I would like literally fall asleep. Like, I'm sorry, this is not interesting to me. <laughs> hey, when anyway, you're I, maybe I that was maybe that was intentional. Yeah, seriously. Trying, yeah. I mean, you're you're a parent now, right? Trying to get your kids to sleep. Oh my god, yeah. I'm gonna talk about um, fantasy football to them. Yeah. So like, all right. Anyway. Yeah, if we just look at like if we look at the ownership, it's pretty clear to see where most of the field's going, right? Like half the field is going to play Kyler Murray, Josh Allen, or Dak Prescott. And then actually if you add Tua on there, um, you've got about over sixty percent of the field. Um, so you know, 
most of that is sort of pay up quarterback, right? Dak 6,500 and Kyler and uh, Allen are, of course, very expensive. Uh, James Robinson, about half the rosters. Uh, then Devontae Parker and Gabriel Davis, super highly owned. So, like, we can see the picture of how this is coming together, right? Like, you can see that a very large percentage of the field is going to have either Kyler or Josh Allen or Dak, so pay up quarterback. Uh, they're going to pair him with James Robinson because they're going to need salary savings if they're playing a pay up quarterback. Uh, they're going to pair. They're going to pair them with at least one of Devontae Parker or Gabriel Davis. Or maybe they might try to get cuter and not go all the way down and use like you know Cole Beasley or Christian Kirk or. Amon Ross St. Brown or AJ Green, kind of that middle range. Those guys are all projecting for pretty reasonable ownership. Um, and then at tight end, they're probably going to play, if they're paying up a quarterback, they're probably going to do Mike Gesicki, um, unless they do the double pay down with Gabriel Davis and um, Devontae Parker, in which case they could do George Kittle. And you could just sort of see like how this is coming together by just looking at the ownership. And you could sort of feel like, okay, if I take these ownership numbers and try to translate these percentages into rosters, right? Because ownership, you don't want to say like it's a pretty weak way to evaluate players to say this player is going to be highly owned. So I won't play him or this player is going to be low. And so I should play him. Right. Cause it's not just about the play. It's about the roster construction as a whole. Um, but you can see how, you know, the ownership translates into common rosters. And I think that's, that's going to be a very common roster construction right now. Right. One of those pay up quarterbacks, James Robinson, one or two of Dante Parker and Gabriel Davis, or another one of the pay down wide receivers. Um, and then being on, if it's one or two, of the pay down wide receivers, then you're probably on either Gasecki or Kittle. Um, and that's like, that's a pretty clear, significant chunk of the field is going to be in that construction. And then, then you've got kind of the, the tributaries from there where like people will try to get cute, like a little off that. And they'll be like, well, I'm not going to play George Kittle, or Mike Gasecki. I'm going to play Josh Allen with Dawson Knox. And then, you know, so I'm getting off of that, that common, you know, that common build, except they're not because you know, right. Knox is, same price uh, as Kaseki. So it doesn't actually change your construction in that sense. It just changes a play. Um, but you can see how like the field's going to be building and there's just going to be a lot of overlap in terms of not just individual players, but in terms of overall construction. And then you can see where the gaps are. Right. Like you can, you can, if you look at the individual ownership, uh, you can use that. And I think about what we know about construction. You can use that to figure out what, what is the field not going to do? And I can tell you with a pretty high degree of certainty, uh, the field is not going to play two receivers priced at 7,000 or above. Sorry, two wide receivers. Let's make sure we're clarif clarifying and not including Kittle in that lump. Um, it's going to be rare, I think, to see like Steph Diggs and Devontae Adams or Devontae Adams and Debo Samuel uh, on a roster together, right? Because it it's possible to do it. It just doesn't fit where the majority of the field is going to go. Um, <clears throat> from what we can see in the in the in the in the ownership numbers. And so if you're looking for ways to differentiate based on construction, and remember there's multiple ways to achieve leverage, right? There's not like one magic leverage path. You can you can achieve leverage through a variety of different paths. But if you're looking to achieve leverage in the field through construction, um, you can play pretty highly owned plays, right? Like Devontae Adams, Steph Diggs, Deontay Johnson, they all project for pretty solid ownership. But because of what we know about the common construction, we know it's going to be rare, not, not unheard of, but rare for rosters to play multiple of those guys. And so that's where you can get into like, you can play guys at highest by pairing two guys at high ownership at a position where most of the field is going to be picking one. Um, or you could do it at running back, right? Like you could say, okay, um, I'm not going to play James Robinson or, or I am going to play James Robinson, but then I'm going to play three running backs and I'm going to play Najee Harris 
uh, whose floor is just amazing. And then I'm going to add in, you know, Joe Mixon, who has an awesome role uh, and who, you know, who is projecting at modest ownership today or tomorrow. Um, and, you know, do the double pay up at running backs. Like there's ways, like those are the ways you can get creative this week through construction without having to think, without having to worry so much about the ownership of the individual plays, try to think about the ownership of that type of build as a whole. And this is like how you can kind of cheat that cumulative ownership number. And if you've been around the DFS space for a while, you've probably heard in tournaments, the concept of cumulative ownership, of adding up the ownership on your roster, and it should be lower than X. And, you know, if you're talking about the Millie Maker, people will generally say lower than 125%. If you're talking about a small field tournament, uh, you know, the, the number's higher, right? 150, maybe. Um, but you can kind of cheat that because it's not all about just individual ownership. It's about ownership of the the overall roster build that you're utilizing. Um, and so, like, it's a it's cumulative ownership is sort of a crutch, right? Because there's also two, t- two guys at 10%. Uh, does not equal the same cumulative ownership as one guy at 19% and one guy at 1% in terms of the likelihood of that roster being duplicated. So cumulative ownership is a crutch anyway. Um, but this is a way to kind of get away from that and say, I can play these highly owned plays, which are overall, you know, the chalk is pretty accurate in being on paper, at least good plays. Um, and so you can play the chalk. You can you just have to you have to play it creatively. And this is a week uh, with so much uncertainty and thus so much weirdness around ownership and construction that I feel like there's just a tremendous opportunity to play the good plays, um, right? Play uh, the plays that are good, that you view as good chalk, but just do it in a way, in a construction that's different than what most people are doing. And that way you're kind of, you can avoid the uncertainty of dipping into like really thin plays and just hoping for crazy outlier performances from, you know, I don't know, Sterling Shepard or Albert Wilson. Um, and you're, you're playing the plays that project well, uh, that you're just doing it in a in a construction that's different in the field, and that's how you're achieving your leverage. You're crushing the lead-ins for me today, dude. I absolutely love it. <laughs> the the last thing that is another consideration for roster construction, uh, you know, pairing DFS theory with game theory for this week is, and this came up with my weekly chat with Todd this morning, and he posed a question to me. He said, "What do you think?" or what are you doing with your flex allocation? As in, do you think the field is going to be utilizing three running backs rosters? Do you think that they're going to be utilizing wide receiver in the flex? And it took me a while to kind of think through this because typically on a slate with a high degree of uncertainty, the field is more likely than not to side with certainty in the flex. And that has typically come through the running back position because it is a lower variance position. But on this slate, we do not have certainty at the running back position, basically outside of James Robinson and Najee Harris. And that is almost entirely built off of volume, which, you know, volume is the best indicator at the running back position for floor. So if outside of those two running backs, are basically a, a smattering of uncertainty, I would surmise, and again, this is just a my read of the slate and knowing kind of what I know about game theory and, and crowd psychology, I would guess that the field is likelier to shift back to wide receiver in the flex as their default. So that also poses an interesting question to us, which is, are there running backs 
that carry high point per dollar expectation in their range of outcomes. And then we compare that to the wide receiver position where the players are placed priced in a similar area. And my answer I eventually arrived at, like, I think there is leverage in playing three running back rosters this week. There's a couple of guys that we'll get into when we start going position by position uh, that I think fit that mold, that I think fit that build, and that I also think add leverage from a general roster construction sense. What are your thoughts, X? I'm curious to know what your thoughts on, on the flex situation for this week. I'm with you that I think that normally <clears throat> the more uncertainty there is on a slate, the more people flock to what they perceive they view as perceived certainty. And that generally means running backs. Um, I think that's somewhat changing in today's NFL. And I don't think it's a DFS thing. I think it's an NFL thing where we just don't see as many running backs that have like locked roles, right? We see more timeshares. And so those are the perceived certainty of the running back position is becoming more fragile. Um, I think that for me, I'm comfortable playing either running backs or wide receivers in the flex this week. Um, I don't think I'm going to lock it to one or the other as I have in some past weeks. Like my default is I lock flex to wide receiver only. That's sort of my default position. And then in some weeks I will open, open it up to running backs and either allow running backs. And then rarely, um, there's a few weeks ago where there's just an incredibly strong running back slate and I locked my flex to running back. Um, but I think that this week I'm going to leave it open to both because with so much uncertainty on this slate, like there's a lot of running backs in, sh- in, in time share positions or just with uncertain, you know, roles uh, right now, but their ceilings are still phenomenal, right? Like the Denver running backs are a good example of this, right? Like they're in a timeshare. They both ended up smashing last week because Denver likes to run the ball a metric ton. Um, so I, I could see, you know, I, I, I'd be I'd be happy to play the Den- like one of the Denver running backs in the flex and just, you know, hope that I get another, you know, another four running back touchdown week from Denver. They each get two. I'm not doing the cheat code with Denver running backs this week, by the way, if I, in case just to make sure that's clear. But um, but I think that like and I also keep in mind also like I've been playing more and I've been playing mostly on FanDuel and, and then Yahoo for tournaments, which are more touchdown heavy. And so on those sites. I think there's more viability to um, to running back in the flex because running backs have higher touchdown equity than most you know, than, than than receivers in general, and so like you don't necessarily need a running back to get the like 100 yard bonus. You know, the running back a running back getting 50 yards and two touchdowns is much more viable uh, as if to produce a tournament worthy score on FanDuel or on Yahoo than it is on DraftKings. Yeah, so let's quickly cover because I can I can feel the question burning. Who are these running backs that you know could put up a better point per dollar score uh, and outpace the wide receivers that are priced around? Well, a couple of them we've already covered: James Conner and Chase Edmonds uh, from Arizona. The Denver running backs: Melvin Gordon um, and uh, oh, cool. Uh, sorry, I digress. Um, the Denver running backs. Sorry, I just got a message text message that came up and destroyed my train of thought. Um, AJ Dillon and Aaron Jones, both in the same game against Baltimore. That's a little bit more fragile uh, based on the matchup. Then we start getting into the guys that I'm really, really intrigued with this week. 
Miles Gaskin at only 5,600. Devonta Freeman at 5,500. Deontay Foreman at 5,200. We also have Devin Singletary, who I covered earlier, at 5K. So there's all these guys. Oh, and the last one, which is another one of my possibly my favorite uh, leverage plays on the slate, and that's Michael Carter, who's coming back from injury and expected to garner a lion's share of the running back work in New York. So Carter's all these guys for decent ownership, not huge, but yes, that is a good point, and my response to that is how like who's playing Michael Carter in the flex would be my thought process on that. And I would guess that it's not going to be very heavy. So although the ownership is high, like Xandermere talked about earlier, it's a way to play perceived, or I guess a way to play heavier ownership smartly, because I don't expect rosters to contain three running backs that are priced at like 5,500 and below. And those are the guys who I have, you know, written in pencil as the guys who could outperform the wide receivers priced similarly to them in the same range uh, at lower combinatorial ownership based on roster construction. I hope that was easy enough to follow. Uh, yeah, trying to get my thoughts out live on that situation is hard to put into words sometimes. Uh, what say you on that? Yeah, I'll add one to the list, um, which is Jeff Wilson, who has failed his chalk. Um, and so his ownership is way down from what it was the last couple of times. So Jeff Wilson as like the chalk running back on the 49ers with uh, Elijah Mitchell out. Um, but Jeff Wilson is, I mean, he, he's a two down back, right? Like he's not getting a lot of pass game work, uh, which is, you know, I think fine. It's what we, it's what we would expect. Um He's only gotten a couple targets in the season, but he, you know, he saw, I think he saw every running back carry or like almost every running back carry last week. Now I say running back carry because Debo Samuel um, has been stealing some carries, but like the question for the 49ers is <clears throat> you're a massive home favorite, um, you know, which is a role that we like to play running backs in. It's a good matchup. Uh, the 49ers, like how much do they really want to bang up Debo letting him play running back? I would guess that like, you know, they're looking ahead at this point. Like, I guess they don't want to just like let Debo keep running, you know, keep playing a ton of running back in a game where they don't need it. Um, you know, he'll probably get a couple carries. They've been giving, they've been, you know, they've been letting him carry the ball every game, but I don't think he's going to get like eight to 10 carries every game for the rest of the season. You're putting your, like one of your best offensive players at, you know, a fair bit more risk of injury to do that. And this is a game where they shouldn't need to do that. So there's all every likelihood that Jeff Wilson scores or has, you know, 18 plus touches. Um, he just hasn't had, you know, the variant swing his way, but like there are a lot of running backs on this slate who have ceiling and, you know, is there uncertainty surrounding them? Like everyone that, you know, Hilo just mentioned. Yes, there is um, absolutely. But there's also, there's also ceiling. And that's what we need to care about, right? Like Singletary, um, the yeah, Packers running backs, Chase Edmonds, James Conner, um, Donta Foreman, Jeff Wilson, Devonta Freeman, Devonta Freeman, that's a cod, what a year. Um, and Michael Carter, like all every single one of those guys has a 20 plus point ceiling. And all of them, uh, I think they're what's the most expensive one of that of that bunch? I think it's AJ Dillon at like fifty seven hundred. So you know they're all pretty reasonably priced, and 
you know, they've all got tw- they've all got ceilings of 20 plus points. I would expect that this is actually a slightly lower scoring week than normal, um, just because there aren't a lot of super high total games on the slate. And so I think the DFS scores required to take down tournaments are going to be a little bit lower than normal. So I think if you can get 20 points from a 5K running back, it's, it's quote unquote only 4X. Um, but on a slate with so much uncertainty and, and so many low total games, if you get, you know, if you're getting between 20 and 25 points from a 5K player, uh, you know, this is not likely to be a, you know, 250, 275 to win a tournament kind of week. So I'd be totally happy with that. <laughs> Again, dude, crushing the lead. And that was going to be the last thing I covered before we before we get into some game environment stuff. But yeah, we didn't practice you know, we're, this. We're we're highly likely to see like even some larger field GPPs. We're likely to see the the winning score, the winning total be in the 212 to 220 range as opposed to like a 240, 250 week. And that goes a little that goes even further than just like, hey, there's no there's not really a, a a lot of solid game environments and there's not a lot of high game total games. There's just a lot of uncertainty on the slate. And that is going to affect obviously how people are seeing the slate, how people are building for the slate and you add in all the information overload and there's just going to be some suboptimal rosters in play this week. All right. So that was like a super in-depth and heavy kind of theoretical exploration to start this podcast but i think that this was like the perfect week to dive into some of this stuff that typically is reserved for like one-on-one coaching and some sites or like for us the courses uh so if you're wondering kind of where do you get more access to that kind of talk check out those courses man because that's where we're able to really dive into this kind of theoretical dfs game theory kind of stuff where you know typically we don't have the time to be able to anchor down on some of that stuff but this week i wanted to really dive into some of the nuts and bolts and the theoretical stuff uh about roster construction all right let's talk about some game environments man obviously we have some high team (laughs) we have some high team total uh games um but those are all in high spread games as well uh primarily uh we have dallas we have uh the cardinals um and we have the bills that are expected to score 27 and a half points plus so four touchdowns that's it like that's all we got this week that is it so what game environments or what games are you circling uh that you see have a greater than perception chance of providing a game environment where, you know, it's conducive to DFS play. Yeah. So let's, let's like kind of walk down the list really briefly. Um, And I'll try to, I'll try to make this super quick. So the highest total game on the slate is 47 and a half points right now. Um, And that's the Cardinals at Lions, but the Cardinals are 30 of those points. The Lions are projected to score 17 and a half. uh, And I think that would be a minor miracle if they get there. Um, You've got Falcons at 49ers, 46 point total. You've got, um, sorry, I'm trying to skip to the games that are that have been moved. You've got uh, Dallas at New York, 44 and a half total. Um, in those cases, the 49ers and the Cowboys are massive favorites. Um, the close the 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 first game we get to that has uh, a a spread under a touchdown um, is 
Bengals at Broncos, which has a whopping total of 44 and a half uh, with Broncos favored by three. So the challenge with this game with this week is if you're trying to do the traditional like game stack build, what game do you stack? Like what game could go off? What game looks competitive? Right? Like you're either you're looking at um you're trying to either pick a place where like uh a bad team exceeds expectations and keeps the game closer, like the Lions, you know, keeping up with the Cardinals or the Panthers keeping up with the Bills. Um, you know, possible, I suppose. Um, or you're trying to pick a much lower total game with teams that are not as good. Um, you're not getting like an elite team like the Bills or the Cardinals on one side, uh, but you're getting a lower spread where the game is likely to be more competitive throughout, like, you know, Broncos, uh, Bengals, or my God, like this is this is the most horrible week because I feel like I'm going to spend too much time talking about Houston at Jacksonville. <laughs> and that just makes me feel disgusted with myself. Yay. Um, but like, what is this show if not talking about playing players from horrible teams? Um, <clears throat> so like, you're either trying to like there's you have three strategies this week i think one is you try to pick a game uh with one of the higher totals with one of the really good teams so like let's you know panthers buffalo or lions cardinals something like that and you kind of do the normal stacking strategy and you're you're hoping that the other team can keep up or at least keep up long enough um to generate you know, a fan, a, a tournament worthy score from the, the underdog team. And, and hopefully you're also hoping there that like that keeps the game competitive for longer, which keeps the favored team kind of the foot on the gas. Two is you're just building around those really high total teams and thinking, look, if the Bills are going to score four, t- four touchdowns or the Cardinals are going to score four touchdowns, I don't care what the other te- team does. I just want to get those four touchdowns and this is going to be a lower scoring slate. So I don't necessarily need the massive ceiling performance. If I just, if I capture those touchdowns, um, you know, from like one of these high total teams, then that roster will be in a good spot. Uh, Or three, uh, the third way to approach it is you're building your core, like the core, the core stack of a roster around one of these lower total games, the sort of ugly games and hoping that, you know, you can capture uh, a good performance at probably a low cost because these are shitty teams and their players are cheap. Um, you can cope, you can capture ceiling performances at modest cost and then allow you to spend up elsewhere on your roster. So like that would be something like playing David Mills, uh, who actually projects as one of the quarterbacks who's going to probably the most dropbacks this week uh, with Brandon Cooks or Nico Collins as a receiver going with him and then James Robinson. Um, and then you're saying, OK, this is my cheap core of this roster is these three guys. Um, and, and they're not going to you know, I don't I don't need Brandon Cooks and David Mills to be the highest scoring wide receiver or quarterback on the slate. I just need them to put up good scores and they're cheap. And that gives me a correlation on the roster. And then I can plug in, you know, Devontae Adams and Najee Harris and whatever other, you know, it's going to stud one-off plays. And the problem is that all of those strategies are really hard, right? Like you need to, you know, A, with the first strategy, you need to think like, okay, how likely is it the Lions keep up with the Cardinals or the or the Panthers keep up with the the um the Bills, right? Like eek. Um it's possible and and you could guess right, right? But like not not only do you have to guess right on which team is going to keep up with that, you know, as a massive underdog uh, in a horrible matchup against an elite defense, you have to guess which team, you have to guess which player, right? Like, who is it on the Lions? Who is it on the Panthers? Um, the second strategy was the, like, I just build, you know, I just build around the highest total teams and just hope to capture all the scoring sort of on the way up. Okay, cool. Um, viable. But 
you need everything to go right. You know, like you need because like that those teams aren't going to get pushed, right? The Bills, the Cardinals, like they're they're not going to they're not likely to get pushed. And in fact, if you're not playing someone from the other side, you're betting they're not going to get pushed. You're just hoping to gather to gather all the touchdowns before the game sort of shuts down. Um, and then the third option is the like stacking shitty teams. And this is this is probably like a gap in my play. Like I think I, I often get too fixated on stacking shitty teams. Um, and so oh, the only too, man. So the only thing I'll leave you with on that is stacking bad teams is is a viable strategy um, because you often getting players very cheap. Look for bad teams where you have a high degree of confidence where the ball is going. A bad like what makes bad teams stackable is when is when you can say, okay, yes, they're bad, but if they're hitting, it's it's gonna be one of these two guys. You know, it's it's gonna be this, it's almost certainly gonna be this guy, um, or almost certainly one of these two guys. Where that way it's, you know. Yeah, the odds of hitting might might be super high, or you know the the ceiling is not you know the highest score of the position on the slate, but at least you know where the ball is going, and so you kind of offset the the lack of overall team total and the lack of you know as much ceiling by uh, you you offset that with um, with certainty in in distribution of work, right? So that's how I view those kind of situations, and it doesn't feel good. Like this is a slate where it's really hard to build a roster that you're gonna that you feel super confident in, and this is what leads to the concentration of chalk, because you can at least feel good about saying, well, well, this guy's really highly owned, so he must be a good play, and you know the field loves him, and all the all the touts love him, and the content providers are talking about him, blah 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 blah, and it, like it, it gives you a sense a, a sense of security, like a security blanket almost in, in your play. Um, but yikes, game environments, man. I guess I didn't actually talk about any. Let me let me actually talk about a couple then. I think any of the teams that are projected to score, you know, 28 plus points, <clears throat> which is like Cowboys, 49ers are right there, <clears throat> Cardinals, Bills, any of those are fine. Um, but I would prefer there to lean to look towards where the ownership isn't. And so the ownership is of those teams, the ownership is most heavily on the Bills. Um, and so I prefer to avoid the bills of that pat of that group and lean towards the other one, the other teams on that list um, of games that I think could produce reasonable tournament scores uh, in, a, in a more back and forth affair. Um, I think I normally love the Bengals, but this week on the road in Denver, it feels like a tough spot for them. So I'm not as on them, um, but I think I like, I actually like the Packers Ravens game because What's his name? Uh, Huntley has actually looked pretty, you know, reasonably competent. He adds points to his legs. The Packers are a slow-paced offense, but the advantage you have from the Packers is you do know where the ball is going. It's a pretty concentrated offense. And then on the Ravens side, uh, they have what I think, who I think is the best leverage play at tight end, which is Mark Andrews. Um, who is smashed with, uh, Huntley at quarterback already this season, uh, um, the Packers defense is, is somewhat vulnerable to tight ends um, and and Andrews is projecting for much, much lower ownership than the guys priced around him in Kittle and um, and Gusecki. And then, OK, to my ultimate shame, Houston and Jacksonville, the very lowest total game of the week, where I think that you get a benefit from this game, where I think you can look at this game is James Robinson is the highest owned player on the slate and he's a good play. Um, you've got Jacksonville coming up firing of their coach. Maybe, maybe that makes them feel a little more motivated. I have no idea about that. But what I do know is I think it's likely it's it's hard for the offensive game planning to get any worse. It can only go up from here. So I think that Jacksonville can only 
go up from where they've how they've played so far this year. And then Houston, you know, David Mills uh, has looked serviceable at times as a quarterback, and they're going to let him chuck it. Right. He's uh, he's thrown a ton of pass attempts in his starts. Jacksonville is a bad pass defense and Houston is a they're not a super concentrated offense. But I do think that like Nico Collins and Brandon Cooks are really kind of the, the primary guys. And it's I think we can project them each for floors of seven targets with upside into 10. Um, and so, you know, cheap player. Good matchup. Uh, at least acceptable quarterback and lots of volume um, is my argument for the the Texan stack. And like I said, like David, if you look at like if you look at each quarterback on the slate and you try to project number of pass attempts for every quarterback, um, the highest would probably be like David Davis Mills is going to be way up there. Ben Roethlisberger is going to be way up there, um, and I don't really know who else. Like I think that they actually project for probably more pass attempts than any other quarterbacks on the slate, and volume can make up for lack of talent. Crushed it, dude. So three things that I pulled from that. One, yes to Mark Andrews. Like, yes, mm-hmm. girl, get it. Like, that is uh, that, one of my favorite plays on the slate uh, for all the reasons you talked about. Um, you know, Huntley has played like 1.75 games this season. And uh, in both of those games where he played majority of the game, Mark Andrews was fed 10 targets from Huntley only. So that is a mucho mucho bueno positive um the other thing really quickly so you talked about kind of the three different ways that you see attacking this slate i agree that probably the most plus ev way uh to attack a slate like this is to bet on one of these lower game total games with a low spread overwhelming so what are those games and and that doesn't mean like don't play the people from the top four offenses but like choosing a core of players, your example um, of the Texans, like and and bringing it back with James Robinson, like choosing that core, uh, you need one thing to go right, right? You get two or three spots uh, right with one thing going right, and that is the game environment overwhelming. So how does that happen, or what game environments are most likely? Uh, in my eyes, to provide a game environment like that that overwhelms its modest total. The first of which is the Titans and the Steelers, primarily driven by the Steelers' propensity to just chuck the ball uh, a ton of times when they get down. Uh, Do we expect the Steelers to come out and have success with Najee Harris? No, not particularly. We don't, right? Even though they're favored by a point here, the Titans are an extreme pass funnel defense. They extremely crack down, or they, they crack down on opposing backfields, and they crack down on opposing tight ends. So that narrows the expected distribution of targets for the Steelers even further to Deontay Johnson um, and um, Jesus, not yet. Chase Claypool. Cool. Uh, to those two players, basically, because they have nobody else. So that is a positive. On the opposite side, you have Deontay Foreman. Uh, there's a lot of unknowns with the Titans. You have A.J. Brown, who is probably one of the better leverage plays this week as well. So that is uh, one of the game environments where I am targeting this week. Another is another you covered, the Texans and the Jaguars. You know, what happens when you have two shit offenses against two shit defenses? Well, it's just a wide range of outcomes. So we've covered that already uh, this year as well. So with a wide range of outcomes, with a slate full of uncertainty, I'm looking to leverage that variance on some of these lower game total games as well. 
the third of which um, you covered the Packers and Ravens, and that's kind of a tweener, right? It's a it's an in between kind of game total for this slate, particularly. Um, the spread is currently almost a touchdown Packers favored. Uh, but we talked about all the things with Huntley Huntley has averaged 37 pass attempts per game over those two games where he played majority of the game. And that, if you extrapolate that even further, you can extrapolate his 37 uh, or his 36 pass attempts in the last game where he played three quarters of it. So if the Ravens get down, and this is another thing we've talked about this season, if the Ravens are in a hole, in the second half, we know that they are going to alter their game plan this season in stark contrast to last season where they just continued to run the ball. So that is a plus for that game environment. And the last one is the Jets and the Dolphins. And I'm going to anchor down on this one a little bit more uh, because this is one of the ones that was not really covered a lot. So we have all this expected ownership on Tua, on Mike Gesicki, on Devontae Parker. And that is the field saying with a high degree of confidence that the production from the Dolphins this week is going to come through the pass game. We know this is a team who has a pretty shysty run blocking offensive line. So they have been forced into basically putting games into his hands. Well, what is going for the Dolphins this week? They're riding a five game win streak. They've worked their way back up with a win this week. They will have worked their way back up into the playoff picture in the AFC. So this is a must win for the Dolphins. They have to win this game. What happened the last time these two teams played, uh, which came back in, I believe, week 11, I think. Let me double check that. Yeah, came back in week 11. So just four weeks ago, a month ago. Miles Gaskin saw 27 running back opportunities. He had 23 carries and four targets. Failed to crack 100 yards rushing, but uh, punched in a through the air. So he went for 18.6 fantasy points in that game. What is also going on with the Dolphins? Well, they have Malcolm Brown, who has yet to be activated off the IR. He has until like right now to do so. Actually, I kind of want to double check that to see if he had. Uh, but he's got to be activated like right now uh, to be able to play tomorrow. Um, they also have some COVID issues, uh, particularly with the running back room. Obviously, Miles Gaskin and Salvin Ahmed were activated and will play this week. So we have kind of a, you know, a, a lead back and clear backup role developing for the Dolphins. So if the field is so certain that the production is going to come through the air, Miles Gaskin is one of the highest single point leverage plays on the slate, considering the expected heavy ownership on the Miami quarterback and pass catchers. So that's one side. Take that discussion even further. I mentioned another guy from this game from the Jets, who is one of these like possible high point per dollar running backs that could outscore the wide receivers in his pricing tier. And that's Michael Carter. So take that even one step further. Who in their right godly mind is going to be playing Michael Carter paired with Miles Gaskin this week? Who is also going to play the Miami defense on that roster? So this is another, like one of those very clear situations where you can differentiate your roster by not making suboptimal plays. So when I say that, you know, Michael Carter could outscore the wide receivers he's priced around, he's priced at 4.7. So he has to outscore A.J. Green, Tyler Boyd, Cole Beasley, Robbie Anderson, Sterling Shepard, Cortland Sutton, like this tier of wide receiver. 
And we know that there's names in that list that I just mentioned that are carrying, expected to carry heavy ownership this week. Even if you go up a little bit and talk about Miles Gaskin pricing tier, you're talking about Christian Kirk, you're talking about Jerry Judy, Julio Jones, Amon Ross St. Brown. So is it viable for those two running backs to outscore those wide receivers in this tier? My answer is, well, yeah. And then you can play all, you know, both of those running backs from the same game who no one likes to do anyway, who, by the way, can hit in the same game because we've seen extreme pass game involvement from Michael Carter. And I know the counter that people are thinking right now when I say that is, oh, yeah, well, that happened when a bunch of the Jets pass catchers were out. Oh, shit. Oh, wait, the bunch of the Jets pass catchers are out again this week. So all that comes together. You can still play James Robinson with those guys. You can attack this game environment as one of the lower game total games, but do it smartly. And you're basically just relying on one thing needing to go right. And you have all this leverage on that particular roster. I'm not saying go play those three running backs on a roster uh, as like, this is the Bible, go do it because it'll make you money. This is just a smart way to gain leverage on the field and leverage the variance associated with this week. Anything to add on the kind of those three game environments I mentioned X? Mm, no, not really. I like, I like Carter. Uh, I like Carter best. I think like two is going to be a really popular quarterback. <clears throat> he's the he's the he's the best projected cheap quarterback, um, and so I think if you're playing Tua and you're playing him with Devonte Parker or Mike Gesicki, that either is fine. Just recognize that you're playing into a lot of ownership, and bringing it back with Michael Carter significantly reduces the ownership, the like the overall ownership of that roster. And so I really like him as a bring back. Um, I don't think I would like limit him to only being played as a bring back, but as I like him a lot more in, in actual stacks of that game than I like him as just an, like an independent play. Um, I actually really like yeah, the Titans, um, Pat or Titans Steelers is a good one too, because it's kind of the same case we made We're talking about Texans is just like Roethlisberger is a quarterback. Like it's one of the few quarterbacks you can reasonably project for like high thirties dropbacks as a median outcome. Um, and with which means you know median which means upside for more uh so you know volume is king and the knock for a long the whole season basically on the Steelers specifically on Deontay Johnson and um and Najee Harris has been yeah their floors are awesome but where's the ceiling and of course Deontay Johnson finally had a ceiling game last week so hooray Deontay um good for him but um I don't think you need the same kind of ceiling this week Right. Like this is a week where if you get 25 points from Najee Harris or Deontay, there's a pretty good chance you're happy with that. Like there's a pretty good chance that that's a happy outcome and you feel good about that. Um, so when you take a player who has, uh, you know, a pretty solid shot at 25 points and has upside beyond that, but, you know, 25 points for those guys is like their 75th percentile outcome, maybe. Um, and so, you know, you can feel pretty good about if you get that outcome, uh, you feel pretty solid about it. And the Titans, you know, Najee and uh, Deontay are going to be two of the higher own skill position players. And this is and this is something I talk, I've talked about many times in this show is when you see high ownership on skill position players or on several skill position players from a game, but you don't see high ownership on the other team in the game or on the quarterbacks. Like that's often an indicator that this is an attractive place to stack. 
I love it, man. One of my favorite ways to approach that specific game environment is Ben Roethlisberger with Chase Claypool. Mm-hmm. Because you talk about how how is Ben likely hitting a ceiling? Well, it's likely coming through a splash player too. Who's the most likely player on that roster to create a splash play against the Tennessee Titans, who we know are struggling mightily in the secondary? For me, it's Chase Claypool. He's seen eight or more targets in three out of the last four games. That has led to 82 or more yards in those three, same three out of the last four games. And he has not scored a touchdown over that time. So if he just replicates what he's done in three out of the last four games, but adds a touchdown, now you're looking at 25 points, which is like what a 75% outcome, as you said, would be for Deontay Johnson and Najee Harris. So getting that at a cheaper price and freeing up salary to spend elsewhere, Chase Claypool is one of my favorite leverage and single plays. Uh, Can be played floating, but I like him with Big Ben as well. Love that dude. I like like Claypool a lot too, because I think it's, you know, his... His median projection is going to be low, is lower than Deontay Johnson and Najee, and, which is why no one's going to play him, right? So his ownership is way lower. His ceiling is not lower than those guys. In fact, like, in fact, Claypool I think has more. I want to say Claypool has multiple games last season where he put up more than Deontay has ever put up in his career. I know he had one game of over forty. Um, I don't know if he's had two. But like Deontay, I think had the best game of his career last week, and he was at what thirty-five or something like that. So I think that he's like Claypool is a super super sharp tournament option as as leverage off of um, Deontay and and Clay and Harris, uh, as well as just to your point, right? Like Ben Roethlisberger is not likely to have a ceiling performance via sort of a you know dink and dunk passing attack to Najee and Deontay, right? He's he's gonna need like some splash plays in there. And that's and that's Claypool. Yes, sir. Chase Claypool via the GPP ceiling tool has the 10th highest wide receiver, uh, 90th percentile raw score. So his ceiling is the 10th highest on the slate. And he's projected for 5.6% ownership. So take that uh, for what you will, I guess. Uh, but that is kind of how I'm seeing that angle there. I will play some right, of that. So we covered. Yes, sir. Gimme, gimme, gimme. We covered uh, a lot of strategy discussion. We covered a lot of the game theory stuff. So let's clean up some of these positions. Starting at the quarterback position, we know the field is going to be paying up, but who are they not paying up for that has just, I think, just as likely uh, a percentage chance of hitting a ceiling this week? uh, And that's Aaron Rodgers. Mm -hmm. So if you are paying up at the position, you don't want to eat the chalk. Uh, Aaron Rodgers, viable, viable option. He is potentially the only other pay-up quarterback above Dak Prescott on the slate if Lamar Jackson does not start. Uh, That is not uber chalk. So that is one way to basically pivot. The, I won't say higher EV, but the... The way to capture the same upside from a roster, but via different salary allocation, is clearly to pay down at the position this week. What do you need to happen by paying down at position? You need Josh Allen, Kyler Murray, Aaron Rodgers, and Dak Prescott to perform suboptimally. So you need them to not hit a ceiling game. 50th, 60th, even 70th percent outcome leaves a lot of room open. So what is like a 70th percent outcome for Josh Allen and Kyler Murray? It's probably like 27, 28 points, right? 
So if they are, if all the pay up quarterbacks are going for 27, 28 points, but you're able to capture a 25 point game, 24, 25 point game from the Ben Roethlisberger's, from the Davis Mills, from the Huntley's, from even, you know, I'm not even going to say his name. <laughs> I don't want, I was going to say Mike Glennon, but that's, that's, uh, that's, that's talking out my ass right now. Uh, but yeah, if you're able to capture 24, 25 points from some of these other guys, um, who are priced 2K, 2.5K below Josh Allen, Kyler Murray, Aaron Rodgers even, like that is a, a pretty significant edge. And what do you need to go right? Well, you need three players basically to hit a 60, a 60 to 70th percentile outcome as opposed to an 80th or 90th percentile. Uh, that's how I'm seeing the quarterback position on the slate. What are you thinking, X? Yeah, I think similarly, right? I want the guys who project for a lot of volume or I want the guys who have a really, like, so volume is like Roethlisberger and Davis Mills. Um, I want the guys who can get there uh, without a ton of volume because they're awesome, which is Aaron Rodgers. Um, you know, Aaron Rodgers is not going to throw 40 times or highly unlikely to, but you know, he can, he can certainly have a 300 yard uh, and three touchdown or four touchdown game without 40 pass attempts because he's awesome and he has great receivers uh and then guys who can feasibly score on the ground because to your point right like what you're hoping for here is that kyler murray josh allen dak that none of them get over 30 points and that if none of them get over 30 points you're kind of sitting pretty with a cheap quarterback who gets between you know who gets 25 and 25 points you know three three touchdowns and 300 passing yards on DraftKings is like 27 points so, you know, 300 yards and two touchdowns is 23 points. That's, you know, you're getting in pretty good spots there. Like, it's likely that multiple cheap quarterbacks are going to get into that range. Or if someone runs in a touchdown, um, you know, that gives them some upside. And so that's like Tyler Huntley is the premium one there. Um, you could argue Cam Newton. I don't think I will be going there personally. Um, you know, Cam Newton does have two rushing touchdown upside. I suppose he also has get benched for PJ Walker upside or downside. Um, but I think you can make a case there. You can make a case for like, if you're going to, if you're going to attack that game, you could make a case for Ryan Tannehill or Teddy Bridgewater, both of whom have some amount of rushing, rushing equity. Um, I think those are pretty thin. Like the guys I'd really focus on are the guys where I feel like I have the highest degree of confidence fence in their volume, uh, either passing or running. And so for me, that's Davis Mills, Ben Roethlisberger, Tyler Huntley, um, in that order, I think, uh, I might put Huntley above Roethlisberger, but it's, those are the volume guys. I also think Jimmy Garoppolo is not projecting for a ton of ownership, but he's the quarterback of one of the highest total teams on the slate. And, you know, everyone wants to play quarterbacks of the other high total teams on the slate. No one seems to want to play Jimmy Garoppolo. And I know he's Jimmy Garoppolo, right? He throws interceptions all the time. He seems terrible. But if the 49ers score, you know, 28 points, and if that all comes through the air, Jimmy Garoppolo can put up a, you know, 250, 300-yard passing game with four touchdowns, and he can get to 25 or 30 points. We've seen him do it multiple times this year. I love it. Anything else to add at the quarterback position? I don't think so. There's a part of me that wants to play Trevor Lawrence. And I feel like I have to like beat that part with a baseball bat. Like it's the, you know, it's the, he's the number one pick. We know he's talented. Uh, the offensive scheme cannot be possibly any worse now that Urban Meyer's gone. Um, the matchup is okay. Given that Houston is more of a run funnel, but we have seen, um, 
you know, they've got like six defensive starters in the COVID list and that impacts them. It'll impact them to some extent uh, all across the defense. And also it's just like, aha, I can leverage James Robinson. But I honestly think that's probably stupid. Um, like in my 150 lineups on the Yahoo tournament, I might have one or two that have uh, Trevor Lawrence, but like, I, I honestly, I, I cannot, I cannot endorse that play. I'd agree with that. Uh, I broke down as much in the end of round. Uh, if you have not checked that out, go check it out. Uh, get some amplifying remarks there. The last thing with the Jags and the Houston Texans, the Jags have given up 17 passing touchdowns this year. The Texans, 18. Compare that to like Washington football team, Indianapolis Colts, Atlanta Falcons. They're all up in the 25 to 26 range. So although these defenses are poor, they are typically not one facing a whole heck of a lot of pass volume against, and they're typically not giving up touchdowns through the air. So do with that what you will. Let's talk about uh, the running backs. Actually, we, we covered the running backs pretty in depth uh, earlier in the kind of theoretical discussion. Is there anything that we left out or that we did not cover at this position that you want to jam about real quick? Should we just talk a little bit about James Robinson? Because it feels like he is, you know, the highest owned player on the slate. He's one of the highest owned players on the entire season. I just feel like I don't, you know, I want to make sure we're doing justice yeah. to that, that situation. I, I had that same thought and realization as I was writing the end around. And I talked about James Robinson in the leverage section because he was so unique this week. Uh, so yeah, I'll let you talk about uh, James Robinson. Um, I did my spiel in the end around, and I'll kind of tie on the ends here at the end. Yeah. So the way I'm viewing this, and and first off, let me preface this by saying, I rarely think about sort of narrative stuff and coach speak and all that. But what we know about the Jags, I'm trying to focus on sort of what we know as opposed to just what we think, what we hypothesize. We know about the Jags. Urban Meyer just got fired. We know the whole team hated him. Um, we know he like, you know, <laughs> kicked their kicker and whatever the hell else, punted their punter. I'm not sure. Um, <clears throat> we know that Urban Meyer was benching James Robinson in the middle of games, sort of arbitrarily, and then putting him back in and then lying to the media about it. It's like, that's a very toxic situation. But we know that, we also know that James Robinson is the most talented running back on the roster. We know that Trevor Lawrence specifically the franchise quarterback, the guy, the number one pick, the guy they're heavily invested in. Trevor Lawrence specifically went out of his way to say, I want him out there. And now Urban Meyer's gone. And so the way I think that's likely to play out is Trevor Lawrence gets his way, right? Like I expect that, you know, the the offense is not going to be completely overhauled in a week, right? But I think that, you know, James Robinson doesn't need overhauling. He just needs to be, he just needs more touches. And I think that, you know, the starting quarterback saying, I want this guy there uh, is, you know, a mark in favor for Robinson's workload. Uh, um, <clears throat> I think, you know, we know the matchup is good. It's a he's a significant home favorite. It's a run funnel defense. Uh, he's got like he's got locked in pass game work. Um, the risk is just the Jags are a bad team, which is, you know, there's a risk to every player. Um, but. At 5,400, like the price is just insane for a player with his role, his volume, his likeliest volume in that matchup. And so normally when a player gets that owned, I'm really trying hard to like knock holes in in them and say like, well, how do they fail? 
you know, how do I get away from this player? And I'm really having a hard time doing that for Robinson. Like the way he fails is the Jags suck, which is possible. Um, or he gets hurt or just the touch to every touchdown goes somewhere else, like random, like all the variant stuff, but that every player on the slate, you can say that stuff about, right? Like their team could fail there. They could get hurt or they could just fail to get the end zone, right? Every player is subject to those factors. And so there's nothing I can think of that really points as to why Robinson is at a higher risk of failure than any other play. And, you know, you could certainly make the case to say, look, almost half the rosters in these in tournaments are going to have this guy and maybe he does get hurt early on or maybe he just you know maybe variance goes poorly and he and he just doesn't get in the end zone and i think that's reasonable like i don't think it's bad to say i'm not playing james robinson but that's not how i personally play like i try to play the strongest players and put them onto good rosters and, and james robinson is just to me very clearly not just the strongest on paper play that we have this week he's one of the strongest on paper plays that we've had the entire season and that's not a guarantee he hits but it's a play that like i'm not going to get off of it just because of ownership like i think that he's i think that he is just a phenomenally strong play and i would prefer to build around him than um than you know than to than to be than to avoid him so I'm going, I'm going down with that ship for better or worse. My first rebuttal is I LOL'd at punted the punter. <laughs> My second rebuttal I is Todd not like that one. That was for Todd. <laughs> I, I definitely enjoyed that. I need a little of that in my life right now. Uh, my second rebuttal is not a re- rebuttal at all. It's an agreement. hundred uh, percent James Robinson. <laughs> I will be hundred percent James Robinson. I don't care. Um, my play style is I want to, pick out the best on play papers as my core and James Robinson will make that. Oh, by the way, Carlos Hyde is also out this week. So there's, they have Daria Gunbawale uh, on hand to siphon away touches from James Robinson whilst they just had a coaching change. And two weeks after um, his quarterback came out publicly saying Trevor Lawrence, I want James Robinson on the field. Uh, So that was a, basically spit in the face of a urban Meyer. Like, what are you doing, bro? Like I need my best players on the field to be able to try and win games. Uh, so yeah, all of that. I agree 100%. Um, if James Robinson is 50% owned, I am now just fine playing eight on eight against 50% of the field. Uh, me personally, I agree. Yeah, like I, said, I, don't, I don't think it's crazy. I don't, I don't think it's crazy. If you're like, I don't want but, you know, I'm going to I'm going to bet against James Robinson hitting and just hope that, you know, hope he fails because variance. That's fine. But like, you know, I'm I'm probably going to have like there's a good chance I have 100 percent James Robinson in my 150 lineups on Yahoo. And that's something I very rarely do. Yeah. So I, I in the end around, uh, I won't go through the whole thing, but I broke down like the the field's decision making matrix with respect to a player expected to be 45 to 50 percent owned. And a lot of the field is going to get to like step B, which is how does James Robinson fail? And they're going to be like, they're going to fit. He's, he can fail if the Jacksonville Jaguars pass game succeeds. Now you're talking about putting your hard earned American dollars behind a quarterback who has thrown one pass touchdown in the last six games combined. That is staggering. Like, okay. You like, can James Robinson fail because the pass game succeeds? Well, clearly, 
but I'm not going to be betting my hard-earned American dollars on that outcome. So I was left with trying to poke holes. The only hole that I could find in James Robinson is James Robinson fails if he gets injured in the middle of the game. And that was it. And so that is what led me to, yeah, I'm just going to bite the bullet and be 100% James Robinson this week. All right. Anything else to add at the running back position, my dude? I don't think so. No, I'm just kind of glancing through. I think we, I think we hit it. All right. Actually, I'm, I'm going to throw out one note <clears throat> just because I see some ownership on him. Um, Corderell Patterson. Uh, we've seen some big ceiling games from Patterson on fairly limited touches. He's gotten by on ridiculous efficiency and awesome. Good for him. Um, he's projecting for some ownership this week because there's not a lot of high ceiling plays. I just want to note his role has been evolved, has been changing a little bit in the last few weeks. They've been using him more like a traditional running back and less like a sort of gadgety pass catcher um, who also gets a handful of carries. And so that's relevant here because I think in a good running back matchup, it makes him a stronger play because he's sort of, he's kind of just more of a traditional running back now. Um, But in a, in a, in a, in a game where, you know, as a traditional running back, you wouldn't play, like I wouldn't play Mike Davis if he was the lead back on the road as a massive road underdog against the 49ers. Um, That makes him more fragile. So I'm not trying to say like, he's a terrible play. Don't play him. Um, but just recognize that the role that he's in the last few weeks has not been the same role that he'd been in earlier in the season. I concur, good sir. Concur. All right, let's move over. Actually, I want to skip the wide receiver position because that is one of the more wide open positions. And I want to move over to the tight end position. We covered a lot of the tight end kind of makeup of this slate. Like a good chunk of the field is expected to pay up uh, relatively to either Mike Kosicki or all the way up to George Kittle. That said, we've got some high priced guys in George Kittle, Mark Andrews and Kyle Pitts, uh, who are, you know, carry the highest raw ceiling on the slate. So what is your, I guess, what is, how are you seeing the viability of any of these mid range to pay down tight ends this week? I mean, Kittle's fine. Like he does have the highest ceiling on the slate of the the tight ends, right? But 7,500 is a really steep price to pay for a tight end. Um, especially for one who is really kind of, you know, in, in less competitive games, he's, he's not like a high volume guy usually, right? Like he's usually a get there on efficiency guy. The last couple games, the 49ers have thrown more than normal. And so he's gotten 12 and 15 targets, which is insane. Um, I would, I would bet the under on, uh, on over under 10 targets for George Kittle this week. Um, Gasecki is like in that category of fine. It feels weird paying 5k for Mike Gasecki um, <clears throat> because he's another guy who like the volume is not consistently there for him. You know, he gets, he'll have high target games, but then he'll have games where he just vanishes and he gets like two targets. So he makes me uncomfortable. Um, um, Dawson Knox, I think is a phenomenal tournament play who we've seen, like we've seen Knox have a big ceiling, you know, like he's one of those guys who is like awesome athlete, you know, big upside. He's not just one of those catch and fall down tight ends. Um, he's going to need a touchdown almost certainly to pay off. because He's not going to get, you know, he's not going to get 10 targets, uh, but he's a guy who can get you 
100 yards and a touchdown or two on four catches. Uh, Mark Andrews is my favorite tight end play of the slate when when thinking about the combination of price and role and ownership and matchup. Um, he's my, he's my, like, he's the guy I want to be the most overweight on in tournaments. He's got a, he's got matchup in his favor against Packers defense that has been strong, uh, against wide receivers, but more vulnerable in the middle of the field. He's, you know, he's clearly shown rapport with Huntley. Huntley has targeted him a lot. Um, and then I think there's some other, like a couple other mid price tight ends that I think you can consider that, um, Zach Ertz has a very real role and it feels weird because I haven't played Zach Ertz like most of the year, but he has a very real role here on the Cardinals and DeAndre Hopkins is out, which further condenses their target tree. Um, and he's got a red zone. He's got a good red zone role and he's got, a, you know, he's got one of the best matchups on the slate on the highest total team on the slate. And people are going to be playing a lot of Christian Kirk and a lot of AJ Green, um, but they're not going to be playing a lot of Zach Ertz. And so I don't like, I don't see a huge difference between any of of the Cardinals pass catchers, personally, that's not true. Of those pass catchers, I don't see a huge difference. Rondale Moore is in his own little tier of, you know, two yard passes. Um, and then what's the other guy? The guy who played all the snaps when Hopkins is out, whose name Antoine something. Antoine those guys, Wesley. Yeah, those guys are in their own tier, like high risk. But like between Kirk and Ertz and Green, I don't see a hugely material difference. Like I think I would probably slightly prefer Kirk out of those. Um, but Ertz is the one coming in at really low ownership, whereas Kirk and Green are projected for pretty significant ownership on a similar boat. I think you could consider like Dalton Schultz. I feel like that's, he hasn't hit in a while, um, but he's still like, he's out there, right? Like he's on the field every snap and uh, on a slate where again, the Cowboys are one of the highest total teams in the week. So you're just kind of, when I'm, when I'm talking about these plays, what I'm looking for is these high total teams where the other guys in the team are going to be highly owned and where I'm just hoping that like I can benefit from touchdown variants going their way. And they're a team that should score several touchdowns, which gives a whole bunch of chances for touchdown variants to go their way. Other than that, though, like my tight end pool this week is really narrow. Um, like I'll have a li- I'll probably be underweight, but have some of Kittle and Gasecki. Uh, and I will try to be overweight on Knox, Andrews and Ertz and, and Schultz, which won't be hard because he's very low on. Um, but that's probably really it. Yeah. So what, what do you need to happen if you decide to pay down at the tight end position? Well, you need the guys priced at five and above to completely fail, which gives you the opportunity to capture 14, 15 points from a pay down option and not sacrifice any raw pointage and pay less for it. So is that viable on the slate? I would surmise that it is more viable than a standard week that said i think the two top tight end plays on the slate and this is from a single entry three max perspective because i'm back to the roots this week uh i will be playing either mark andrews or dawson knox mark andrews for the expected volume in a neutral matchup and dawson knox for the unreal absurd leverage that he gives you this week uh that is where i'm coming from from a single entry three max mindset I understand a little bit more the pay down at the position on this particular slate compared to other slates. Because uh, we're, as games are removed, we're down to a nine game slate. As top tier options at the position are removed, you start to inch closer and closer to kind of the like showdown tight end mindset. Like, oh, the second tight end on this freaking team just put up a 
four catches for 30 yards and a score. Well, like that's a little bit closer to viable on the slate than on a standard week. That said, I will be spending the salary where um, basically I'm chasing overall roster leverage or uh, a little bit of additional certainty through volume through Mark Andrews. Anything else for the tight end position? Yeah, I want to throw out the like, I, this is one area where I think I'm going to disagree with you a little bit, just in that while I, there are so many tight ends in the mid range that it seems unlikely to me that all of them fail. Um, it's certainly a, a plausible outcome, right? But I also feel like there's salary is pretty loose this week, especially if you're avoiding the common, like the chalk build. And I just, I don't love any of the pay down tight ends personally. So it kind of feels like it's, it's hard for me to imagine me personally building a roster where I feel good about my pay down tight end and where I feel like I can use the salary intelligently to build a stronger overall roster without falling into, you know, without falling into where everyone else is going roster wise. Maybe that's my fault for not being able to be creative enough in my (laughs) roster construction, but. That's 100% valid. I dig that. Um, Yep. Let's move back to wide receivers. We'll hit defense, and then we'll open it up for questions. Uh, Wide receivers, we covered a lot of the wide receivers with respect to individual game environments. Are you seeing uh, any other, we'll call them floating plays, uh, from this position this week? Yeah, I mean, the most obvious guy in the world, I think, is Devontae Adams. And I feel like we should just talk about him because we may as well. Um, Devontae Adams is, for me, it, Chuck, I am happy to eat because, you know, this, we lost Cooper Cup. Like, there just aren't a lot of play, like really strong high-end plays on the slate that we can feel super good about. And Devontae Adams is one of the few. Um, so Devontae Adams, I think, is... A staple for me. I don't care how high owned he is. Uh, he's a player who I want to be overweight the field on, um, even if he's, you know, even if he was the highest owned receiver on the slate, but he's not going to be. Um, I do want to know, like, I think I want to repeat what I think about fragility really quick because there's a few really high, like, highly owned wide receivers who I feel personally are extremely fragile. Um, Devontae Parker is the highest owned receiver on the slate, and that feels absolutely terrifying to me. Uh, like, we, don't know his level of involvement. I mean, we don't know if he's really going to be the alpha guy. Like the 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 um, Dolphins have kind of trolled us a little bit before with how they deploy their guys, um, and so I don't, I don't know for sure. I don't. I don't like it's pro. He's probably the guy, but I don't feel certain about it. Uh, I think he's a fine play, but it's like at thirty eight percent ownership for a wide receiver. Like I'll eat chalk at running back, but wide receiver like receivers are more volatile positions. So it just it's really hard for me to to play to play into that kind of ownership for a guy as volatile as Devonte Parker. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, there's like, you know, Gabriel Davis also like good play on paper, but like, my God, 24% ownership. Cole Beasley is a guy who doesn't need a lot of volume to get there. And in a game where it's like, if Carolina is not super competitive, like Beasley normally gets there when, uh, it's a shootout. Um, and, and Allen throws 40 plus times. If Allen doesn't throw 40 plus times, it's kind of hard for me to see how Beasley gets there. Um, so there's just a lot of uncertainty 
And and people are going to like plays like Beasley and Davis because they're reasonably priced and they're on really high total teams. Um, it doesn't make them bad plays, right? They could they could hit, uh, but it's I think there's there's more fragility there than I think the field is giving credit for. Um, some plays that I'm interested in that are not quite so owned. Um, regardless of whether or not you target the game heavily, I think that Jamar Chase and T. Higgins are good plays. Uh, they are they're both elite wide receivers with high ceilings, lots of involvement in that offense, and and I feel like no one's really playing them. Um, they're both under 10% ownership, and they're they're they have the they have the break the slate kind of ceilings. And you know, break the slate ceiling, the the criteria for that is a little lower this week than than in other weeks. Um, but on in the context of this week they both have what i perceive as break the slate ceilings um same with claypool who we already talked about um i think that you can do a correlated pairing of like if you're playing chase or uh or tiggins you could bring it back with judy or Cortland sutton if you don't, don't want to use one of the running backs on that uh on the the broncos i think that's also like that's really really reasonable and strong um well some god it's a tough position this week. Oh, everyone's playing the Cowboys. Like everyone's playing Dak. Uh, but yet no one seems to want to play Amari Cooper or CeeDee Lamb. So I don't know who people are playing Dak with. Um, he's like Dak is projected for the highest ownership out of any Cowboy. So like Amari and CeeDee are also both elite wide receivers who have, you know, slate breaking uh, ceilings, um, as does Michael Gallup, really. And then Julio Jones at 3.2% ownership. And I know, you know, we talked about him last week. I loved him last week. He failed last week. That made me sad as well as a little bit poorer. Um, but like, I still, I still want to play him because he's still the wide receiver one in the offense. And if the, um, if they make it competitive, the Steelers, if the Steelers keep him competitive and the game is supposed to be competitive, um, then, you know, he should see more volume than he saw last week like last week the the Jags didn't score so the Titans didn't need to involve him and if you have Julio Jones in your team and you're a smart you know manager you probably take it kind of easy on him uh unless you really need him because of his injury history right like you're not going to just extend him and give him 10 targets every single game if you don't need him but there's more likelihood of needing him this week yep I think that's Julio Jones played Julio Jones played only 45% of the offensive snaps last week against Jacksonville in a game where Tennessee defense put up a big goose egg on the scoreboard. So it made a lot of sense why Julio Jones saw a lower than normal snap rate. Typically, you know, if he's fully healthy and ready to rock, he's typically in the 75 to 80% range. So that made a lot of sense. Um, uh, the other thing, Devontae Adams, uh, another guy where... I'm searching for a reason to not just stick him in all of my rosters this week. Couldn't find much. That Baltimore secondary is torn to shit right now. They are hurting. Um, And Green Bay are currently in the driver's seat for the only NFC playoff bye with only four weeks to go in the season. So they went out, they're in. I expect Devontae Adams to be leaned on extremely heavily over these last four weeks of the season as the Packers look to lock up that bye and home field advantage. And so, he's a badass. How do you know he's a mother Adams? badass? <laughs> I I agree. Adams. So, 
Yeah, so I surmise, I guess, that we're going to start seeing a lot more of these 15-plus target games for Devontae Adams down the stretch, as opposed to the middle of the season lull where he was seeing five, seven, eight, nine targets. Uh, that is pure conjecture. That is reading the tea leaves um, with, you know, behind a team that is like basically win a Super Bowl or Aaron Rodgers is for sure gone type deal. Uh, that is kind of how I'm reading that situation. Play Devontae Adams. Yeah. Uh, Chase Claypool, you covered. Um, I mentioned this guy last week. Uh, had a down-ish game with respect to overall production, but basically set up in the same spot why we liked him the past couple weeks. That is Amon Ross St. Brown. Um, he is basically the last remaining pass catcher on a Detroit team that we know is likely going to be trailing and we know that is likely to increase their pass rate and pace of play when trailing in games. So I like Amon Ross St. Brown as that kind of mid-range last person on a roster type deal. Um, CD Lamb, Amari, and Gallup. I think you covered that situation perfectly. You'll see here shortly when you take a peek at the end around that I love the Cincinnati Denver call. Um, I was uh, in what I was in Discord earlier today uh, talking about that play a little bit as well. Um, I've seen some steam being generated for Brandon Ayuk. I get it, not for me type deal this week. Um, but I, I, I see the thought process behind it. Um, but again, it's much more likely to me that San Francisco operates kind of a standard San Franciscan spread offense type game plan this week, um, where it's one of the higher, one of the only higher game or Vegas implied team total teams that I am okay, like not forcing exposure to, if that makes sense. Um, it's really hard for me to play when everyone else is healthy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And even when we saw a large portion of this team missing, uh, did not exactly light the world on fire. And honestly, everyone in this case is really Kittle and Debo. Yeah, which is their offense. Yeah. Um, I like the Julio call. We talked about that uh, ad nauseum there. Um, I think that is pretty much it. Uh, if going to, I like Cortland Sutton the most. Um, Chidobe Awuze is going to be out for Cincinnati, and um, the remaining corners, uh, Mike Hilton in the slot, who is likely to be. Uh, seeing a good deal of Jerry Judy and then Eli Apple uh, on the other perimeter uh, who based on alignments and you have to understand how offenses and defenses are built. Cincinnati basically plays sides on the back end and Denver plays primarily sides on offense. So the, how the wide receivers and the opposing cornerbacks would line up uh, would pit Tim Patrick primarily on Eli Apple. So that leaves a backup corner on Cortland Sutton. The volume is a massive concern, but if chasing this game environment, he would be the player of choice for me, particularly. I'm glad you dug into that because I was going to ask you what led you, what led you to prefer Sutton to Judy because I think they're it's hard for me to pick between them. Yeah, Mike Hilton, who's the basically slot uh, cover corner for Cincinnati, is PFF's second graded uh, slot corner this year. Um, that has a lot to do with kind of just the overall composition of Denver's defense, but he is 
um, one of the better slot cover corners this season. Well, thank you, good sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, that pretty much wraps up the wide receiver position. Um, yeah, that's all I got. We don't have a ton of options. We only got nine games. Uh, so let's move over to defense. We'll take some questions and get out of here. We're back oh up God. to two Seriously. hours, man. I hate defense this week. Oh, I like it a lot, actually. Um, I'll lead it then. The yeah. the two best on-paper plays at the defensive position are both pay-up. They are the Cowboys against the Giants and the Dolphins at home against the Jets. What do the Cowboys have going for them? They have a massive 58 total sacks plus turnovers generated this season. They've scored a massive seven defensive touchdowns on the season. They are a hyper-aggressive unit, so that is a unit that I want to play at lower expected ownership um, and be underweight at high expected ownership. So they come in with a moderate, you know, 13, 14% expected ownership. Dolphins also check in in that same range, 13, 14%. Uh, but it is a differentiator for me to be paying up at the position. I've kind of harped on this ad nauseum as the field has gone to this search for the cheap option at the position, uh, a high variance position. Well, I'm still searching for the best on paper plays. Uh, and to me, those are the Dolphins and the Cowboys this week. The Dolphins have a fairly significant 49 total sacks plus turnovers. They've scored three defensive touchdowns. They're playing the Jets, who lead the league or who actually are tied for the league lead in turnovers this season with the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, obviously, the Chiefs have played one more game now, but um, yeah, 25 total turnovers on the year. So again, hunting for raw upside differentiator upside at the position leads me to those the field is going to be looking at buffalo i can't poke very many holes in that um what i would say is the 23 sacks for buffalo uh on the season that number is going to have to increase for the bills to put up a differentiator score this week um they are that said they are in a good position to do so because the Carolina Panthers are worst in the league in adjusted sack rate uh, along that offensive line. So those are kind of the three top options at the position. Um, those are also the three top ownership position uh, or ownership options at the position this week. Uh, what you do know you got from defense. like kind of a MME? <laughs> yeah, what do you got from yeah, that? I mean, like, what you laid out exactly why I've heard is why defense is a struggle for me this week because the the best like the best plays are the highest owned ones. And maybe like and, and that's just a me thing, right? That doesn't mean they're bad options. I don't think it's I don't think it makes sense to be like, well, I can't play them because they're highly owned, so I'm gonna go to try to be contrarian just to be contrarian. Like so what's interesting too about this slate is the cheapest defense on this slate is 2400, which is very unusual on DraftKings. Normally, the cheapest defense uh, on DraftKings is closer to is like 2K 2100, 20, maybe 2200. So they're pricing up the bottom tier defenses, and I don't know if that's something that's just this slate or if that's something that's going to continue that they're doing. But like you've got like Carolina and Detroit both 2400. 
And so I think that's that's shoving people up the salary ladder a little bit because you're not saving as much. So the only defense that's under 3K that projects for any real ownership is Jacksonville against Houston, which makes plenty of sense um, as a defense. But like the defenses that are that are projected for ownership are are good. And so like I feel like normally paying up more for defense has in the past gotten me and most slates it gets me more differentiation. And the reason I don't like defense on this slate is it doesn't get me the differentiation that I'm used to getting, right? Like I want more differentiation if I'm paying up. I want more uh, ownership ownership uh, benefit. So that said, uh, I, like Buffalo, Jacksonville, Miami, Dallas, all very reasonable defenses. I would rank Jacksonville lowest of those. I I'm, I think they're reasonable because you, you, you're just kind of going for the Houston sucks narrative, but like so does Jacksonville. Um Miami, Dallas, and Buffalo are all strong defenses uh, this week. The defenses where I want to go as well um, that I want to be overweight on in MME are San Francisco against Atlanta, against a pretty immobile Matt Ryan, lacking weapons like we've seen Atlanta flounder. Um, Arizona is the the ultimate pay up defense, right? They're the most expensive defense on the slate. They are, but I, but I think they're capable of they're capable of a ceiling performance uh, just as high as you know Miami or. Dallas or Buffalo, um, they're going up against you know Jared Goff, who is who can be absolutely atrocious. And then if you want to get cute, um, so I've been th- I keep thinking about this about how much James Robinson I'm going to have, and then if I d- if I have any rosters without James Robinson, what do I do with them? Um, and so I think it's likely that what I will end up having is a couple of Trevor Lawrence rosters with James Robinson, a couple of Trevor Lawrence rosters without James Robinson. This is an MME to be clear, um, not not smaller stuff. Uh, and then I'll probably have a, a handful of rosters with the Houston defense. From a talent perspective, the Houston defense is not really that much different from, say, the Jacksonville defense. Um, right? Like these are both, neither of these are super talented teams. Um, both of them are going up against equally bad opponents. And so it's just going to be a slop fest of like who makes the fewest mistakes. And the field is betting with a very high degree of certainty that it will be Jacksonville that makes the fewest mistakes. Um, but I think it's entirely possible that we see it go the other way and we see, you know, Houston make fewer mistakes and Jacksonville make more. And then, you know, it's, it's a low percentage play uh, to be clear, but it's the kind of play that if it hits, it brings so many rosters down with it that I feel like it's worth at least a little bit of exposure to. So that's my crazy defense. I love that call. I love that call. It's a shitty play and it won't work. (laughs) <laughs> no, I like that from a leverage perspective, uh, thinking about these things that the field isn't thinking about. Uh, along that same line of thinking, the reason I like Miami so much is because I like Gaskin so much and I can pair yeah. the two together and nobody's going to be doing that. Um, yeah, it's kind of my end of thoughts well, there. Bill's on the Singletary, right? Like if, you, if we get, yes, sir. If we get, if we get no Zach Moss, that feels uh, super, super strong because the Bills defense has gotten there not as much through sacks. Like the Bills defense is one of the highest scoring defenses in the league on the season because they keep shutting people out. Yeah. Um, which is extremely yeah. rare and hard to bet on. Um they're they're not a team that generates, you know, a ton of sacks, but they are a team that generates a fair number of turnovers. And so what you're hoping for there is not so much like stalled drives. What you're hoping for is turnovers that put Singletary in good field position and result in like short touchdowns and not Josh Allen and marching the field and racking up passing yards. So like I love if if Moss is out, that actually increases my interest in Bills D as well as Singletary. Love that thought as well. 
All right. I don't know if Aaron is still. I, yep, there he is. Cool. We'll He's like partying with a dog. What? I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, doing something crazy. Um, <laughs> while before uh, Aaron reads questions that we've already received, <laughs> if anybody has anything live, raise your hand. We'll get you up on the stage afterwards. Uh, Aaron, over to you. All right. This is from Solo. What are the offensive line and defense absences that will most impact how teams are able to operate on Sunday? Yeah, this is totally you. All right. <laughs> uh, the Cardinals are missing a backup center, so not a lot going on there. Atlanta Falcons, nothing there. I'm just going to run through it because that's, I think, the easiest way to do it. Um, the Baltimore Ravens missing a backup center. Um, the Buffalo Bills are missing Dion Dawkins at tackle. Uh, nobody for the Panthers of note. The nobody for the Bengals of note. The nobody for the Cowboys of note. Um, the nobody for the Broncos of note. Uh, nobody for the Lions of note. The Green Bay Packers could be without nose tackle Kenny Clark. So that is a big deal for their run defense. Um, the Houston Texans. We talked, yeah, the Houston Texans. We talked about that. The lone offensive player who is on the COVID list currently for the Texans is center Justin McCray. Uh, and we talked about all the um, absences along the defensive line for them. Uh, nobody Colts. That's not on the slate. The Rams not on the slate. The Miami Dolphins, nobody of note. We know about uh, the skill position players uh, there. Um, and then the Giants, uh, most of their COVID absences are in the secondary. Um, Adoree Jackson, J.R. Reed, Natrell Jemerson, Aaron Robinson are all cornerbacks, defensive backs that are expected to miss keep an eye on that situation but um obviously that is a pretty significant boost to the dallas pass catchers um and then the only other defensive guys on the covid list currently are both linebackers o'shane uh jimenez i think that's how you pronounce it x i jimenez um and cam brown both are starting linebackers that are likely to miss as well the jets uh, nothing along either offensive line, uh, but they are likely to be out linebacker Hamsa Nasrildin, uh, who he is more of a role player linebacker for the Jets. Um, and then the Steelers are like one of the healthiest teams this week. Nobody there. Uh, they do have defensive end Montrevious Adams, uh, but he is more of a kind of role player as well. Um, that. Actually, the Titans um, have nobody additional on the list outside of their the normal known uh, injuries, and that should do it. So, from a from a like, how does this affect game planning perspective? The biggest one is probably the nose tackle out for the Packers, um, and that is pretty much it from like a how this could affect like an in the trenches matchup. Hope that answers the question. All right, last one. And then, uh, as always, guys, if you have any other questions, X and Ilo are usually uh, active on Discord later tonight, or Sonic will be there, or uh, I don't know if you guys have seen, but Mike Johnson also drops an update, uh, usually Sunday morning. And I know JM is paying attention to everything, too. So 
look for updates throughout the weekend or not out the weekend, but through the night and into tomorrow. And then uh, last question. I'm a Discord take- junkie. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you take it out from here after this. Uh, this is from Carry Out Cole. On a slate with low scoring, does it make sense to project lineups based on floor rather than ceiling or median? Assuming your player pool is already filled with the guys who offer both floor and ceiling or a good points per dollar value. Go ahead, X, and then I'll jump in. Um, it depends. Like, I, I assume here you're talking tournaments, and I don't know if that's correct. Um, in cash games, I will tell. Like, I'll tell you how I look at it. <clears throat> in cash games, I look at floor and median and ceiling because you actually need all three. Um, you know, like, because like what I'm trying to do in cash games is trying to piece together the overall strongest lineup. And then the definition of strong can be kind of wibbly, right? So like if I can give up, say one point of floor for five points of ceiling, that's a trade I'll probably take, you know, yes, the, my floor might be a little bit lower, but at the end of the day, right? Like you're not going to get your, your roster will not produce a floor or a median or a ceiling as a whole, right? Like it's individual players on that roster who produce those things. And, you know, it's unless you're winning the Millie Maker, you're not going to get ceilings everywhere. And so someone's going to disappoint. And so you need some ceiling on a roster elsewhere to make up for when someone disappoints. And so this was a mistake I made frequently early on in my DFS career was like too much floor. And so I'd have all these like floor, like high workload, low A dot receivers. And it's like, well, it's, it's so hard for them to fail. They get so much volume and they get, you know, eight catches for 30 yards. And but the problem is that if anyone failed, there was no ceiling elsewhere on the roster to like to 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 make up for it. Um, so in cash, I look at all three. Uh, in tournaments, I don't tend to look at floor very much personally, except in like I don't tend to look at floor in MME um, because in MME tournaments and large like you know five thousand, ten thousand plus entry tournaments, you kind of need everything or close to everything to go right anyway. And so whatever someone's floor is, if you have a player on your roster who hits your floor, who hits their floor, you're you're not screwed we saw someone win the millie maker two weeks ago or three weeks ago with robbie anderson scoring like two points but it means you have to get everything else like exactly right um so i care more, more about median and then and then much more about ceiling outcome uh so with that that's sort of the preface to all this so i see where you're going with this where you're saying like look it's we're not as likely to have like these massive scores and should i care more about median what i would say is on a lower scoring week in some ways we should care more about ceiling because it's likely that we're not going to have as many high ceiling performances, which means that like Hilo and I talk sometimes on the show about like the break the slate performance and how, you know, if like you don't always get a break the slate performance on every, on any, on every given slate, right? Like there's a lot of times you have slates that don't have anyone who breaks the slate. Um, But when you do, it's like you, you need that. And on a slate without as much, like there aren't a lot of guys who are likely to be, to be able to, to be able to get 30 plus DraftKings points, right? Like Devonte's got a good shot at it. Uh, Devonte's got a good shot at it. And probably like a couple other guys might get there, right? Like, but Devonte's the only guy you can say really has a good shot at over, um, at over uh, uh, 30 DraftKings points. And so like, cool so what is like so how does that like what does that matter for looking at ceiling versus median um it means that guys who hit 25 to 30 points on this particular slate are likely to be a lot more valuable than they are on most slates 
on most slates, guys who at 25 to 30, unless they're super, super cheap, you're like, cool, that's fine. Doesn't really help me. Doesn't really hurt me. Like, I'm fine. Um, on this slate, a guy I think 25 to 30, you're likely to be pretty stoked about. Kind of like we talked about with um, Deontay Johnson. And so no one's going to have a median projection or a floor projection of, you know, 25 to 30. So what I think is actually, it's actually more useful to me on a slate like this to look for ceiling because there aren't that many guys with ceiling. And it's likely that like, you know, we're not going to see a ton of ceiling performances in all likelihood. And so it means that we need to make sure that the ones that we get, like the ones that are out there, that we have a good chance of capturing. So that's how I think about it. Yes. So the way I think about floor and ceiling projections is it should be a consideration based on contest selection. So the smaller the field or the flatter the payouts, you're bringing in floor a little bit more into your decision-making process. Even for, this is my personally how I attack single entry in three max. The contests I'm playing are still, you know, three, four, five thousand entry fields. So in those tournaments, that is still like, I got to beat a crap ton of people to take this thing down. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to take down tournaments. So when we play contests that have larger field sizes, we are almost exclusively considering ceiling. And that is a little bit counterintuitive, but it's better in my mind to think about floor and ceiling based on contest selection. So these 100-man contest GPPs or the higher dollar, low field uh, kind of contest style, you're going to see people ship those with 175, 180, 190 point output uh, on you know probably 50 to 60% of the weeks. In the $100 SPY, which has like 4,444 people or something like that field, uh, similar thing to the $150 three max. Um, these contests, you're still seeing regular scores in the 220 to 240 range that are taking down these tournaments. So you're still regarding ceiling more than floor. In fact, the middle tier single entry and three max stuff is probably the contest where you see the highest score winner outside of the millimaker. I've noticed that trend this year. It's like I've seen I've seen probably like 40% of the con- of the weeks that we've seen this season the winning score in the spy or the $150 three max was higher than the slant, which is kind of crazy to think about. Uh, but that is where that is where like a congregation of the sharps is. So it all depends to me on what the contest size is, what your contest selection is, what your goals are. Are you utilizing your all the rosters uh, in your portfolio for that week as one entity, meaning you're managing variants across your portfolio. So you're willing to accept additional variants on individual rosters. It, it all goes into your play style versus the contest selection. And that's kind of how I would think about that floor versus ceiling discussion. All right. I think that is going to do it. X, do you have any parting shots, my man? I do. Um, and it's actually not specifically about NFL, so I'm sorry. Um, but I just want to call it, if you have not spent any time in our betting channel, 
uh, I would really encourage you to do so. Uh, we have a collection of folks over there, myself being one of them, um, but also uh, some folks who are really good at hockey, really good at other sports. Um, Stella Girl, in fact, not a girl, oddly, um, but uh, who's amazing at like manipulating uh, like arbitrage opportunities across sports books. Like this channel has been absolutely printing money over the last few weeks. So even if you're using an offshore sports book, like obviously it's better if you live in a state with legal sports betting and you have a choice of sports books, but um, um, but even if you're using an offshore book, like this channel has been absolutely printing money. And so, you know, you like, if you have some extra time and you want to expand beyond just DFS into some prop betting, like this is, a, it's, a, it's an awesome resource. Uh, check, go in there and check the pins in Discord uh, for pin sheets of like bet tracking. And you'll see like, you know, there's there's a lot of it's it's there's a lot of transparency in that channel. People are like putting bets, they're writing them in sheets, they're tracking outcomes. Um, so there's a lot of like unlike a lot of sort of touting areas, there's a lot of like transparency and tracking of outcomes, uh, which I think is awesome in this space. And it is like it has been a print fest and would love to share it with more of you all. I dig it, man. OWS fam, that'll do it for week 15. Uh, you can find Hilo and X on uh, discord later tonight and into tomorrow morning if you got any follow-on questions outside of that we will see you at the top of the leaderboards of this super unique and interesting slate <laughs> got another way to work that in there i like it yeah let's go all right have a great, have a great night everyone see you in discord